You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. Authoritarian and sly bureaucracy gone mad over legalistic. A sample of the furious reaction this morning to the government's latest pandemic measure that restaurants and pubs here record and retain for 28 days all food orders placed by their customers. Gardaí will then have the right to inspect those records to ensure compliance with COVID-19 restrictions. But the regulation has been questioned by the hard-pressed hospitality sector, which says it wasn't consulted and condemned by a number of government and opposition TDs. The Department of Health says it's not necessary to record in minute detail what a person was served, but it must be clear that each person was served a substantial meal. Our reporter Amy Neareada has been out in Killarney in County Kerry to get some reaction from business owners in the town to the new regulation. It's ridiculous. It's crazy. It's so wrong. The conversation around pub and restaurant restrictions is extremely tense these days. The addition of another rule to fall to Ireland's document outlining contact tracing regulations has, to no surprise, stirred up mixed reaction in Killarney. Niall O'Callaghan owns the Falter Bar and Restaurant on College Street. For him, this new system is not feasible. Well, see, this is our till system, so... You can't actually put a table number on it on the receipt. So all we can do is write dockets, as we always do, then put the receipts into the till. Um, to get this system, for most bars that are doing food, is going to set you back anything from five, it depends on the size of the place, from five, five to seven or eight thousand. Kate O'Leary of the Laurels Pub on Main Street also questions the practicality of these new guidelines. It shows such a little understanding of how the hospitality industry works and I have failed to see the logic behind it. For the likes of smaller outlets, it's going to be crazy. And it's totally impractical and I can't see it being, I can't see it being implemented. The VFI have said it's, it's bureaucracy gone mad and I have to agree, I think it's just, it's, it's nuts. According to restaurateurs Mark Trevo and Michelle Rosney, the legislation will have no effect on their businesses. I personally think it's a little bit pointless. It might affect the pub serving food rather than a restaurant. People don't come into a restaurant to drink and then go out and have street parties afterwards. Everyone who books a table with us at Rosner's restaurant at the Killeen House, we have their contact tracing details on reservation. Um, on the night, we know exactly what time they arrived. And then also when we're taking their dinner order, we keep a copy, handwritten copy of the docket. Everyone who comes in to dine with us at Rosser's restaurant has a substantial meal because our dinner packages start for $39.50 for a two course meal. Uh, So no, on reflection, the new guidelines will not change how we operate our business. Others are of the opinion that the government needs to straighten out its priorities when it comes to implementing guidelines. Kellyanne McSweeney is manager of McSweeney's Bar. Instead of adding new guidelines, maybe police the guidelines that are there first and get them right and make sure everyone's abiding by them before bringing in new ones, you know? Because you're just adding to your load then and without getting anything right. That's Kellyanne McSweeney ending that report by Amy Nee Reader.
Elizabeth Farries of University College Dublin is Director of Information Rights at the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. She joins us on the line now. A very good morning to you, Professor Farries, and thanks for talking to us. The Department of Health is saying in relation to this that it is necessary for restaurants and pubs to be able to demonstrate that each person was served a substantial meal. They've got to keep a record of that, it would seem, make that record available to Gardaí to keep it for 28 days and available for inspection by Gardaí uh, if, that, uh, if that arises. What, what do you make of that in terms of the legal basis for this regulation? Does it hold up? Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me this morning. Yes, so we're seeing that the details both collected and held about people who are headed to the pub for a meal. These details certainly appear excessive. They appear disproportionate. And they appear to extend beyond what's necessary for managing COVID. And insofar as these personal details of pub goers are to be held by the guardie, so that they can investigate crimes that might happen, well, th- then that too appears to be unlawful. And why would that be? Well, I mean, okay, the regulations appear to be saying that personal detail, while collected for the purposes of managing COVID responses, might then also be used by Gardaí for prosecuting offences. And this suggests on its face a level of surveillance allowed to the police that extends beyond managing COVID and extends beyond what legality and human rights would allow. You see, the Guardi can't just gather up personal records of people's activities for reference in the event that something or that someone might do something illegal. And, you know, I'd question whether the police even want this level of responsibility, you know, these right. new powers as, you know, perhaps we could call them pub grub data controllers. It's just, it's a level of generalized well, it's not, surveillance that's it's entirely invasive. It's presumably not uh, not the, the customer, the, the person who, who places the order who would face prosecution. Um, that that we're not, is not suggesting would arise. It, it would be potentially the, the pub or restaurant uh, owner uh, who, who would be, uh, who would be potentially or uh, open to some uh, prosecution. Like, I'm not sure yeah. what the uh, the clear intention behind the regulations are, because as others have said, there has been a lack of communication. The government needs to be doing better here in transparency with the public about explaining what the in- incoming regulations are doing and how they are formed. And there's certainly been a lack of consultation. But the regulations on their face say that when someone's personal detail is held and is then required for the purposes of prevention, investigation, de- detection or prosecution of a criminal offence, well, then again, that extends beyond the pub owners to the pub goers themselves. Is there a case for this being looked at by the Data Protection Commissioner? Absolutely. And indeed, that's a level of consultation that should have happened in the first instance. We should have been talking to people from the industry, um, concerns from consumers. We should certainly have been talking to the Data Protection Commissioner. And insofar as Guardia are being involved, there should have been consultation with the Department of Justice. There should have been consultation with the Guardia themselves. There's just a better way of doing this. And from the perspective of the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, the overall policing of COVID is about sparing use of powers. It's about caution. It's about removing police from private interactions. So there is certainly a way to do this better in the end. Elizabeth Farries, we leave it there. Thank you for talking to us. That was Professor Elizabeth Farries from the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. Just no time to die
That's the theme tune of the new James Bond film No Time to Die, performed by Billie Eilish, who co-wrote it with her brother Phineas O'Connell, as well as Hans Zimmer and Johnny Marr. In the entire history of the 57-year-old film franchise, after Sam Smith's writing on the wall from the 2015 film Spectre, the poster is out. The trailer comes out today. The film goes to screen now in November. Let's speak to Helen O'Hara, Empire Magazine film journalist. Helen, good morning. Good morning. We'll talk about the film itself shortly, but mm-hmm. why is this film, this franchise, and its success are otherwise so important to this industry at this time? Well, I think it's another one of the big uh, tests of, of sort of the resilience of cinema and, and whether people are ready to go back. Um, you know, obviously we had Tenet. That's a big deal. That's a Christopher Nolan film. You know, in normal circumstances, that would be a big, big film. But at the same time, it's a, it's a hard one to sell. He was being very mysterious about what it was about. Whereas with a Bond film, everybody knows what they're getting. So the hope is that this will really be one of the ones that brings people back to the cinemas. It's perhaps not a question of if it will make money, but Mm. when. Would that be fair? Yes, I think so. I mean, a lot of films, even if they make money in the cinema, that's not what they rely on. They make money down the line. The cinema is, for a lot of films, almost a lost leader. You know, that's where you do all your advertising and, and you make all your noise and you make people aware of the film. But they don't get around, you know, people have busy lives. They don't get around to seeing it until months or years later. So, But they, they sort of half remember, oh, yes, I remember I meant to see that when it was in the cinema. So... You know, it, it isn't necessarily, uh, you know, a film hasn't necessarily made a loss if it makes a loss in the cinema. But at the same time, you know, it, that's where some films make a huge amount of money. And of course, the last Bond film made a billion dollars or the last but one. And they're going to be wanting to kind of hit those kind of targets again in normal circumstances. But normal circumstances won't prevail in November. Will people be able to go mm. to the cinemas in the kind of numbers needed to rescue this film and the industry? I mean, maybe, I think, is, is the question. I mean, we, we have to hope so. Um, I think a lot will depend on how comfortable people feel going to the cinema, which they may not, and, and I'm not going to tell anyone how to feel about that. Um, I think that there's a, a big question mark over, you know, how... Um, where we are as a world we don't know will there be you know second waves and so on will there be will there be other problems we just don't know that yet so everything still feels very unsettled and i I do recognize that but i think at the same time you know that that these film companies are trying to be flexible trying to kind of shift with the tides and trying to figure out something that will work it's uh, Daniel Craig's last time as Bond, mm. although in, in film terms, in the last movie, he'd actually retired as Bond as such. Is there any <laughs> word on who the next Bond is going to be? No, there isn't. There's a lot of speculation around, well, quite a few people, basically everyone who looks good in a suit, really. Uh, you know, I've, I've seen, there's been speculation for years about Idris Elba. I think he's probably a little bit too old now. Um, there was speculation about Henry Cavill, but he kind of did it already in The Man From U.N.C.L.E. Um, Henry Golding has been the subject of speculation. He's the guy from Crazy Rich Asians. He's a British actor. Um, so there's a lot of noise, but no actual definite you know definite answers on that overall how much is hollywood suffering as a result of the pandemic I mean, quite a lot. I mean, as I say, you know, a lot of these films that we're talking about would be billion dollar films in in the normal run of things. You know, things like Mulan, um, I I think was on track at least or was hoping to make a billion dollars at the box office has gone straight to Disney Plus uh, video on demand. So, you know, it's it's a real shock to the system. They're still trying to figure it out. You can see that release dates are still changing almost week by week as they try and figure out what the best kind of combination of things to do is. But yeah, it's it's been a real blow. 
Helen, thanks for talking to us again. That's Helen O'Hara, Empire Magazine film journalist, on the uh, continuing release of No Time to Die. 14 people will go on trial in Paris today over the attack on the satirical magazine Charlie Hebdo more than five years ago. A total of 17 people were killed in just three days. The killings marked the beginning of a wave of jihadist attacks across France that left more than 250 people dead. Journalist Elaine Cobb joins us now. Um, Elaine, that was a horrific day in January 2015. It shocked the world. Uh, the actual gunmen were killed by security forces. So these 14 who are on trial today are accused of what? Audrey, these 14 are accused of helping. They're mostly accomplices of Amadi Koulibaly, who is the man who... Um, took hostages at the Jewish supermarket two days after the attacks on the Charlie Hebdo offices. In the initial stages, it was thought that Koulibaly was just a fan of the others who was prompted to action, someone who thought this is a good opportunity. But as the investigation has gone on, it's very clear that they, they were closely coordinated attacks. So you have people who provided guns, who um, got a a car for Koulibaly to get away. Uh, most of them say that they were they thought he was trying to put together a robbery plan and they didn't realise it was terrorism. There are three who are missing, though, including um, his religious wife, who took out small bank loans to buy guns. She's believed to be in an ISIS camp in Syria, and two more who were also quite close to him um, are presumed dead. Right. Why has it taken five and a half years to get to this point? Well, there are links, as you say, with the attacks in November, because while looking for um, uh, the people who were linked to Koulibaly and the Kouachi brothers who attacked the Charlie Hebdo offices, there was that raid in Brussels, um, in Belgium, where somebody then fled from there who was involved in the November attacks. So there are kind of, there are sinuous links there. And in going into this investigation, the they said they really wanted to work out exactly what had happened, see exactly who was linked to who, in an attempt not just to get answers for the day and to give some answers to the families of the victims, but also to trace what exactly was going on in France, that we had this wave of attacks in 2015 and, uh, you know, to a lesser extent in 2016 afterwards. Uh, Charlie Hebdo, the the people who died, the the editor at the time was was known as Sharp. They were celebrated cartoonists who were killed. Uh, They were well known, I suppose, for, for taking swipes at the establishment and religion. And in the run up to this trial, they have republished the cartoons which the gunmen used to justify their atrocity. Yes, today's issue of Charlie Hebdo, which always comes out on a Wednesday, um, has the cartoons back on the front page with a, a big headline saying, you know, all this for this. Um, they've, the, the editor, the current editor, has said, look, we will not give up. We will never give in. And they haven't published any uh, cartoons of the Prophet since the attack. But they, they said that we've been asked many times to do so. And they said we didn't really feel it was the right moment. But today it is just as a reminder that 
something like this can prompt so much violence. Uh, that despite the fact that they are, the newspaper now works out of a secret location, they all have heavy security and they still receive death threats. It was a terrible time in 2015 in, in France. We all remember it. What is the situation there now, um, Elaine, in relation to the terror threat? Well, as with everywhere else, COVID has kind of taken over everything. Um, for a long time there, anyone who was stepping outside of the norms was too visible. Uh, but in the last few years, the there's been a much less of a threat as ISIS has been reduced and a lot of people who were drawn to that message went to northern Iraq and Syria to fight. Some came back realizing it really wasn't for them. But the French have been keeping very strong tabs on pretty much anyone they come across who had links to terror or terrorists or shown an interest in fleeing to Syria. And while they have said all along, look, we can't ever say we're on top of this, but they feel that they have a better idea of who was trying to um, to, to plan any attacks. What they had found in recent years that they were, there was more danger from the kind of lone wolf attackers, if you will, who were inspired by ISIS, who didn't show too many outer signs of being actively involved or fully drawn to it, but one day decided to act. Or, as we've seen in several cases, people who were unstable, who jumped on the bandwagon, if you will, to, to kind of make it feel like they had a better reason um, to, to attack people. And, okay. and that was something that was showing up for a little while. Elaine, thank you very much indeed for bringing us up to date on that story. Elaine Cobb from Paris. Now, we didn't expect them, but Ellen and Francis let their presence be felt in August. The naming of storms started in 2015, introduced by Met Aaron and the UK's Met Office. And today, the 1st of September, the new list of storm names for 2020-2021 has been revealed. From today, we'll be looking out for storms Aidan, Darcy, Julia, Naya, Tobias. Hopefully we won't get, we won't get to know them too intimately. Uh, Evelyn Cusack, Head of Forecasting at Met Aaron and Chair of the European Storm Naming Group, joins us now. Evelyn, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me in, Maggie. Remind me now, Evelyn, when is a storm big enough to get a name? Well, we, we name a storm when we are, uh, are issuing orange level warnings for winds across a wide area. And not just for orange gusts or red gusts in coasts and over high ground, but over a wide area. And there may also be extensive rain or even snow associated with that storm centre. And it's really to give a clear, authoritative and consistent voice for the warning so that the citizens will take actions to prevent harm to themselves and their property. And that's the idea. So it's when they hear a name, mm. they, they take more notice. It's about making people more aware. Now, we were only at F for Francis last week. So we've now stopped with with last year's um, list. Yeah, we have to say goodbye. No, we, we, no we Roisin. Go- no yeah. Roisin, no Kim. Kitty, no. uh, a few other names that we'll miss, but some interesting names. I mean, especially with the Dutch Weather Service joining in last year. We've got an interesting Dutch name, Hailwyn, which we might get well, to H. Actually, believe it, that's actually um, Welsh. 
Oh well, yeah, and I'm I'm looking forward to that if we get as far. It's a lovely girl's name, isn't it? It is, and yeah. Bella is B this year, so we we might Bella and Flora. A bit too nice for storms, <laughs> though, aren't they? But still, they're very pretty names. Yeah. Um, Evelyn, we didn't have a very good August with those two storms I mentioned. Was that quite unusual? Well, actually, uh, August is the quietest month of of the year with the slackest winds, so it was very very unusual. It is the wettest month actually in Ireland, and that's because we tend to get warm humid air with thunderstorms but not so much this year we got the the very uh, the high winds we have to go back to 1986 to find a similar similarly wind, windy month and there were two storms that year um, one famous ex-hurricane Charlie mm. which produced two to three hundred millimetres of rain so we're still working on the statistics but certainly exceptionally wet and windy unfortunately and the important thing then Evelyn is does it mean that we're going to get an Indian summer is September going to be fabulous well, for the next 10 days, uh, we've no, there's no sign at the moment of Storm Aiden. Uh, Good. <laughs> for, for, we do expect some heavy rain over the next uh, 24 hours, quietening down a little bit for the weekend, but the temperature is slightly below average, mm. I'm afraid. So just kind of average old weather, but nothing too extreme in the short term. But, okay. you know, it's still all to play for in the longer term. So we don't have to put out a welcome mat for Aiden yet. That's good to know. We don't expect Aiden just no. yet. No. Good, good. Excellent. Evelyn, thanks so much for joining Thank us. You. Evelyn Cusack, Head of Forecasting at Met Aaron and Chair of the European Storm Naming Group. Thank you. Thousands more children return to their classrooms today and all this week as schools across the country reopen for the first time since the COVID-19 shutdown in March. Acting Chief Medical Officer Dr Ronan Glynn, in an open letter to parents and teachers, says there will be cases of the infection among school children. But international evidence shows that child-to-child and child-to-adult transmission of COVID-19 in schools is uncommon. The decision to reopen, he says, was based on guidance from international bodies, including the World Health Organization. Last evening, the Department of Health reported an additional 42 cases of COVID-19, but no new deaths. Worldwide, the number of detected cases has now surpassed 25 million. Dr David Nabarro is the World Health Organization's special envoy on COVID-19. I spoke to him before we came on air this morning and began by asking him about that WHO advice on schools reopening. I think that everybody in the United Nations system recognises that schooling is absolutely vital for children and none of us are taking a position that children should be kept away from school associated with COVID unless there's a really, really strong case for it. We've been working together, bringing experts around the table to discuss what are the best ways to bring children back to school safely. And guidance was released a week ago Uh, Firstly, I think it's really helpful guidance because it started to really set out what are the best ways to reduce the risks to children. And there is now uh, a strong request that children in school, when they're not able to keep physically distanced from each other, should actually be masked if they are 12 years or older in the same way as adults are masked. And then secondly, the children between 6 and 11 years should be 
using masks if there appears to be a high risk of COVID in the community. It's not a one-size-fits-all instruction, but it is guidance based on the best available evidence. A couple of other things. We, at the moment, are looking very carefully all over the world at how much evidence there is that children are passing on the virus to each other in schools. Uh, one of the challenges is that a lot of children who get the virus appear to be without symptoms. So it's not easy to get an absolute understanding of, of how important that is. Secondly, we continue to look at whether children can bring the virus home and give it to others in the household. So there are still uncertainties, but overall, we are encouraging a careful return to school with a lot of attention to precautions. Uh, and if there is a lot of virus in the vicinity of the school, then, of course, the school has to be looked at, like other institutions that are possibly needing some temporary restrictions while the infections are dealt with in the community. And those kind of measures and others, will they be sufficient to at least significantly reduce the risk of what we saw, for example, in Israel earlier this year, where schools were reopened and then hundreds had to close again because of outbreaks right across the country? Yes, you're right to cite Israel, in my view. And also we've seen in South Korea similar moments when schools have had to close because of large outbreaks. And I think that that will happen from time to time. So I don't want to say that the precautions we're putting in place will absolutely stop all uh, COVID transmission in schools or between schools and communities. But I think all the, all the evidence that we have is that the precautions we're suggesting will greatly reduce the risk. And then we need to be really super uh, obviously watchful when schools are reopened and if something does happen then we will need to be ready to perhaps uh, go through a temporary period of movement restriction again. More generally Ireland has seen a recent rise in cases over the last few weeks but not yet in hospital admissions or indeed in, in deaths. Is though our response to the pandemic here faltering? Is there a certain level of response fatigue setting in? Well, everybody in the world is having to come to terms with the virus and also to really find their own way to put in place the, the preventive steps that, that are being asked of them. And some people find them quite difficult to maintain, especially the physical distancing, uh, the mask wearing and the hygiene. Uh, also, people are not always finding it easy to stay away from others when they've got symptoms of illness. Uh, it's our view that all societies will get used to this over time. It'll take a few weeks. Uh, and as we look at different countries in Europe, we see a very welcome uh, a, a, a adherence to the universal precautions that we've recommended. You see in the newspaper reports of people perhaps gathering in a uh, 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 a very crowded way in some settings. Uh, I like to think that these exceptional rather than the norm 
and that by and large all of us are taking this virus very seriously. We, we know that at least in this country a majority of those now being infected are, are under 45, they're younger people um, and I wonder how typical is, a, of that, is that of what's happening elsewhere and is there a sense in which People are, are wondering, is this virus losing its intensity because the, mm. the number of deaths are not what they were at an earlier stage, that actually it's not as lethal as it was at the outset? Yes, there are people looking at the information, the kind you just gave me, that you've got cases rising, but you haven't got so, so many increases in people going to hospital or people getting seriously ill and dying. I mean, this is just really good news. I don't know why. In partly, I think it's because really older people who are at higher risk are being very, very careful, and those who look after them are being very careful. Uh, also, I think we're paying much more attention to what happens in crowded settings like factories, uh, particularly cold factories, where people have been getting the disease. But there is the possibility that the virus is becoming uh, less fatal, but I personally am not yet ready to say that. I think it's more likely that we're just seeing a different subgroup of the population being infected. And please, let's just be careful. We've been through a long period of lockdown. We've been reducing our contacts with each other. It's meant that the virus has almost certainly had less opportunities to spread from person to person. In the coming months, if we see a big increase in the amount of mixing, we could get a great increase in the numbers of cases and be back to where we were. So I do want to say to everybody, please let's not think this virus has lost its sting. Let's not think that somehow we don't have to uh, practice the precautions. We've got to keep it up and we've got to keep ahead of this virus. It's a stealthy virus and a dangerous virus and it's up to us to keep it at bay. Ireland has some of the toughest travel restrictions anywhere in Europe. Other EU countries are allowing much greater uh, freedom of, of, of movement of, of cross borders. Is there clear evidence that travel contributes significantly to the spread of infection? Well, when we are looking at travel, we ask ourselves, what is the incidence of a disease in the place to which a person is travelling to and from which they'll be returning? And is it much greater than the incidence of disease where we're coming from? We're also asking whether the measures being used uh, in the different places in terms of getting on top of the outbreaks are of the same intensity and quality. Uh, getting a clear understanding of these quite uh, delicate uh, assessments is not easy, which is why there has been some controversy about uh, travel restrictions and whether or not uh, the the uh, openings are to be cl closed. I would say that it is important to be careful because uh, quite often when you've got numbers low in your own countries, there is a risk of importation. Uh, and what's needed is both looking at the numbers and looking at the quality with which cases are being dealt with. For example, a country may be reporting quite a lot of cases but that may be because their detection systems and follow-up systems are really good. We should not necessarily criticise them just on the basis of numbers. We've got to look at the control measures. Over time, I think we'll get better at this and people will be better able to predict whether or not their plans for travel are safe or, or are in danger.
Just a final question. The Director General of the WHO, Dr. Tedros, was speaking last week about uh, this pandemic being with us for two years or perhaps been over uh, within two years. Where are we in relation to the, 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 the pace and timescale of this? And how, how dependent would that be, the, an end to the pandemic on the development of a, an effective vaccine? Well, we're going to need everything that we can possibly find in the way of new technologies to get ahead of this virus. We're going to need every human being working to be on the alert. We're going to need public health services everywhere up to speed. Uh, Dr. Tedros is right that if we can put all the steps in place, we can get ahead of it. But if we can't, or if we've got inequality in the way in which different countries are dealing with it, then it's going to stick around and be a a constant threat. And I suppose my my parting remarks to everybody in Ireland who's listening to this programme are quite simply, don't give up. Keep the fight up. Keep all the elements that we've got in place so that we can have a comprehensive response to this virus. And let's keep ahead of it so that we can get on with our lives, our education, our social socialising, because otherwise the virus will beat us and knock us down. And we don't want that. That's not the way that we want the world to live. And would you be hopeful we will find a vaccine? A vaccine will be found? Oh, I am so hopeful about a vaccine. I'm, I'm amazed by the level of cooperation by scientists all over the world. I'm pleased to see that there are several candidates that have gone into phase three trials. Uh, All I'm going to say to you is that it will take some time for everybody in the world to be immunized when we have got a vaccine that works. And that's why we've got to keep all the steps in place to make sure that we can get ahead of this virus, even without the vaccine. The vaccine will help us a lot, but we can't bank on it yet. And that was Dr. David Nabarro, the special envoy on COVID-19, excuse me, with the World Health Organization. Around 5 million euro worth of mobile phones were stolen over the last 20 months. Nearly 12,000 phones have been stolen since the start of last year, but only 10% of them have been found. We can talk now to Crime Prevention Officer with Angartha Siakona in the Meath Division, Sergeant Dean Kern. Sergeant Kern, you're welcome to Morning Ireland. Um, and I suppose we tend to forget that iPhones and smartphones, because we use them all the time, that they're a valuable item. They are, Audrey, and I suppose since... Uh, January 2019 we've had 5 million euro worth of phones stolen uh, which is a substantial amount as you can imagine And it's an opportunistic crime mostly is it? Well it's opportunistic it is and obviously with people in build up areas, people leaving them in their cars unattended, maybe going for scenic walks or runs uh, and in the past they were in, in say when people were planning a night out you know, in pubs and in nightclubs uh, coffee shops, people walking along the roads, robberies. There was a number of different areas where they were taken from people, but the number is just substantial, like 11,500 phones. And only approximately 10% of them have we, we have recovered in that time. And why is the recovery rate so low? Uh, the recovery rate is low, I suppose, because we can't... Uh, there's nothing to help us at this moment in time to find the phones. We're now recommending people to download a, a trusted app uh, which can help find your phone. Uh, that's one of the first things that people should do if they have a, a smartphone. And also, when we recover, we've, we've recovered about 10% of them. But our biggest problem is that when we recover phones that we can't identify the owners. 
So people can actually put in, say, likes of an emergency contact on the screensaver, uh, make sure they even have, even consider uh, putting an air code or some other unique contact number on the back of the phone that when we do recover it, we can contact the person straight away. Uh, but also for the phones themselves, I mean, there's not not, not a lot of valuable information on the phone, so uh, the owners of the smartphones should make sure that there's insecurity on it to ensure that whoever's taken them won't get access to personal information within the phone itself. Yeah, so the Trusted Tracker app, just going back to that for a moment, if, if yeah. it's on some phones when you get them, but if you download one that is trusted and your phone is stolen, how then can you, you access that, that app, that tracking device to, to find the phone? Well, you can go down, there's settings that you, you, you're given a contact email address uh, when you're downloading the app. And from that, you'd be able to access uh, where the phone is uh, but if that does happen, we want to ins- uh, suggest to people that not to follow the phone themselves to make sure that if their phone is stolen and they have a Find My Phone app on it, make sure that they contact the local guardie and we will follow it up then straight away through the information that's downloaded on- onto the email itself. And presumably just simple things like keeping your phone locked and having, a, a, having it password protected are also important. Yeah, as I said earlier there, I mean, there's so much valuable information from photographs. Uh, people are going online via banking. Uh, you know, there's, there's, inf- there's files. I mean, it's, it's nearly their, their, diary, their online diary now. So it is important that, you know, there is a pin security on it uh, to ensure that if the phone is lost or stolen, that people just can't get access to it straight away. And they're very easy to do. Uh, you know, we, we'll have lots of videos and infographics on the Garda website there from early morning and people... They can follow those or if they have any problems, they can get in contact with the local guardie or what we just suggest to an awful lot of people now in our community groups is that talk to the young generation because they are, most of those are really good at helping uh, others, you know, download the, the, the Find My Phone apps, putting on the pin security and putting whatever other security is within that phone because all phones are unique. Uh, so it's important to be able to go to the settings and find out what you can and cannot do. Okay, so good advice there to keep your phone safe, the tracker app, and also to put an emergency contact into the phone so that the Gardaí, if they do find them, uh, can contact you to return it. Thank you very much indeed for joining us this morning, Crime Prevention Officer with Angartha Siakona in the Meath Division, Sergeant Dean Kearns. RTE Investigates has learned that a national government directive has resulted in a number of audiologists being redeployed from their frontline services to contact tracing duties. The movement is part of the HSC's latest escalation plan to respond to rising numbers of COVID-19 cases has led to the cancellation of vital appointments for some patients with hearing loss. Aoife Hegarty of RTE Investigates joins us now to tell us more. Morning Aoife, what's going on here? Well, Gavin, this is a move which we understand has affected both adult and paediatric audiology services. But we first learned of this decision when we were contacted by a family based in the west of Ireland whose young son with severe hearing loss had an emergency appointment cancelled with less than 24 hours notice. Now, seven-year-old Enla Harrington Cregan from Athen Rye in County Galway was adopted from China by his parents, Vanula and Robert, in 2017. At that point, he was diagnosed with severe to profound hearing loss and he was fitted with hearing aids. But Enla was considered a late diagnosis and as a result he has delayed language development. 
Now, he has made a lot of progress in the intervening years, but as we'll hear now from his mother, Fanula, if he's to advance further, it is critical that his hearing aids are working perfectly. When his hearing aids were first put on, they had to keep turning up the level because the only way you can tell that they're working is to listen to the child's speech. His speech wasn't progressing, so they gave him stronger hearing aids to start off with, and then they turned up the level of his hearing aids to the maximum point at which they could be set without damaging the hearing that he has. So at that time, the audiologist stressed the importance of of keeping an eye on the levels of his hearing aids. She said at that time, if he ever complains of things being too loud, you need to come back in here immediately. Enna started complaining in the end of July, uh, beginning of August, that sounds were too loud. I immediately rang audiology um, and was told that uh, there was very few appointments, if any, available because the audiologist had been redeployed to contact tracing. Um, I was shocked that I was acting on the advice of a professional, and yet the professional whose advice I was following was being prevented from treating her patient because she had to go and make phone calls. Like, I can't even get my head around that. Now, Enna did eventually get an appointment for the end of August, but it was cancelled at short notice. Tell us about that. Yes, well, as you say, Enla was scheduled for an appointment just a few weeks ago because Fanula was anxious that he be seen before he returned to school, you know, an environment where he's going to be surrounded by a lot of sound. But the day before his appointment, as I say, with less than 24 hours notice, that appointment was suddenly cancelled. That meant Enla has had to start school without his hearing aids being adjusted, which, as Fanula will describe now, has proved very challenging for him. He's going into a place where all of the professionals in his life, his special needs assistant, his teacher, his resource teacher, his principal, are all wearing either face shields or masks or both. So the quality of sound that he's hearing has reduced. But even more crucially for him, he's lost the ability to lip read and to read people's gestures. And then on top of that, he's straining to hear what people are saying. And suddenly a lawnmower passes outside or someone turns on a hand dryer somewhere and that blasts into his ears because his hearing aids haven't been adjusted. Um, So it must just feel like a constant onslaught of sound into his poor little brain. Experts you've spoken to, Aoife, have also expressed serious concern about the impact this redeployment of audiologists may possibly have for babies with hearing loss. Yeah, one source I spoke with who works in the audiology area told me they're particularly concerned about the very serious implications this move could have for babies. They're babies who, A, have yet to be diagnosed with hearing loss. And remember, Gavin, if you aren't diagnosed and fitted with hearing aids by six months, you're considered a late diagnosis. And then secondly, B, they're concerned about babies who have already been diagnosed and who may now miss vital appointments because the clinics at which their ear moulds for hearing aids are fitted are being cancelled. Growing babies who have hearing loss must have their ear moulds replaced every few weeks so that sound won't escape. The concern now is that those children may be placed at a disadvantage and that's a concern shared by parents like Fanula. If Emma's speech is not given the opportunity to catch up, if he's not given the opportunity to hear pure speech and reproduce it, this could be a lifelong issue for him because we have a narrow window of opportunity to improve his speech while he's he's still developing. So this could have long-term implications, both for his ability to speak 
express himself and communicate, but also to his self-esteem, his self-confidence, and his, his general well-being during his teenage years and into adult life. And his mother, Fanula Cregan, there, what has the HSC had to say about this? Well, just this week as we were researching this story, Enla and his parents received a written apology from the HSE for the manner in which his appointment was cancelled. And he has now been offered another appointment in three weeks' time. The correspondent says the decision to redeploy the clinicians resulted from a national directive from the Department of Health, meaning the facility can now only offer a skeleton service. Separately, in a statement to us, HSE Community Healthcare West said it very much regrets that some appointments have had to be cancelled at short notice, and that's due to the redeployment of two staff members as contact tracers from the 18th of August. The statement added it plans to reschedule cancelled appointments in the coming weeks, and it has applied to backfill the audiology posts left vacant by the redeployments. Eva, thank you. That's Eva Hegarty of RTE Investigates. It's happy birthday to Van Morrison today. To commemorate the 75th birthday of one of Ireland's greatest ever songwriters and performers, the August issue of Hot Press is a Van Morrison special, which tracks his amazing career all the way back to the 1960s. Tonight, Hot Press will broadcast 11 very special video tributes on YouTube. It's part of the Ray Van Van Morrison series, which has already seen covers of his songs by Paul Brady, Liam Neeson and Andrea Corr. Tonight, we'll feature Hosier's cover of the hit Caravan. Down the caravan is on its way. I can hear the merry gypsy play. Mama, 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 look at Emmy Rose. She's out there playing with the radio. That's gorgeous, isn't it? Hosier covering Van Morrison's Caravan. And President Michael D. Higgins will perform his version of Rayvon John Don. Rayvon John Don, Rayvon thy holy fool. Down through the weeks of ages in the moss-born dark bag pools. Rayvon down through the Industrial Revolution. Empiricism, the atomic and nuclear age. Rave on down through time and space. Wow. Niall Stokes, editor of Hot Press magazine, joins us now. Uh, Niall, thanks very much for talking to us this morning. Some big names wishing Van the Man a happy birthday. How did you get them all to contribute? Or did you just say, it's Van, he's 75? <laughs> well, we decided that the best possible way of celebrating ba- Van's birthday uh, was to get 75 Irish artists to record 75 of his songs. And uh, there was a hugely positive reaction. I mean, I think it's very important to say that Van is, without a shadow of a doubt, one of the great uh, songwriters, composers and performers of the past uh, 60 years on the world stage because he started out at the age of 15 uh, as a professional musician and uh, he's uh, written over 450 songs. He's still writing great songs on his, his most recent album, Three Chords and the Truth. And uh, so it, 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 the, the important thing here is to focus on the work mm. of one of the greats. And, and we can hear some of his work figure. there in the background, Niall, a brown-eyed girl. I didn't realise it is in the top 10 songs ever played on American radio. I mean, he, he's just a global massive hit, isn't he? He always has been. 
Yeah, he's a phenomenal songwriter and uh, he's written, uh, you know, an, a huge number of classics. Um, but Bernard Girl is one from the 60s uh, that has endured in a phenomenal way. But he also wrote Gloria, which is a fantastic garage band classic uh, recorded by Jimi Hendrix, uh, recorded by The Doors, recorded by U2, recorded by Patti Smith and loads more. Uh, so, so Van has contributed a huge amount to uh, modern music and to Irish culture. And we wanted to celebrate that. Uh, and uh, so tonight is a huge night yeah. with 11 uh, artists uh, delivering videos. And how, and how will people be able to see it? Where do they go to be able to watch all of these fantastic contributions? Yeah, well, it, it, it's all free for a start. You go to YouTube, uh, Pr- President Michael D. Higgins uh, with music by Bill Whelan. Uh, that's at seven o'clock. And people can subscribe to the Hot Press YouTube channel to get uh, alerts, and that's free as well. Um, and uh, it runs until 9.30. Hosier uh, singing Caravan, which you played a bit of there, is the final track. But there is a wealth of fantastic music. And if people dig in uh, to the videos that are already up there, there is some brilliant and extraordinary stuff which makes a statement about how great Ireland is at uh, delivering wonderful music and the extraordinary wealth of great musicians here and and brilliant to be able to do it like this Niall under the current circumstances I guess under under normal circumstances we would have been maybe seeing this in a concert format yeah I mean I think uh, there, there is a lockdown spirit involved and that's one of the great things about many of the videos that there's a lovely sense of intimacy about it and the uh, you know there's a there's an emphasis also on the extraordinary healing qualities of van morrison's music uh, and we get from the videos and from the people things that people say around the videos just how much love there is uh, for van and for his music well niall thanks so much for joining us niall stokes editor of hot press magazine we'll have a little minute of van now to sing us out i think this morning You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.